It's good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Sa. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We're continuing our study through the book of Mark today. We're in the third week of a series that we're calling Normal Christianity. It's a series that is intended to capture a unique section within the book of Mark where Jesus is teaching his disciples what it means to follow him. And have you ever wondered that? Have you ever asked yourself the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does that look like? You know, when it comes to God's calling upon us as believers, there seems to be such a wide range of what he's calling us to. For some of us, God's calling us to sell everything that we have, move overseas and be a missionary. While others of us, he's calling us to live and work here in Austin, Texas, to be a missionary for him for here, here in Austin, Texas. Some of us, he's calling to be married and raise up children that love him. Others of us, he's calling to be single. There's such a wide range. But what are those callings of God upon every believer, without exception? What are the things that he's calling every believer to do? What are the things that ought to be common and normal within every person that claims to be a follower of Jesus? Well, the, answering that question, that's the heart of this series, and that's what we see Jesus doing in these chapters of Mark. And so today, we're going to see that a part of normal Christianity is that we be a people that seek the salvation of others within the body of Christ. That we be a people that seek for the holiness of others within the body of Christ. That what God is calling every believer to do without exception is that we be a people that seek and pursue and fight for the salvation, the holiness, and the well-being of others within God's church. And so we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 50 today. Let's first read through verse 41 together. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. If you guys remember what's been happening in the book of Mark so far. Well, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that he, in fact, is the Messiah. He is the king that they've been waiting for. But he is not a king that's going to conquer the Romans and establish an earthly kingdom. But that he's going to be a king that's going to suffer and die. That he's not a conquering king, but he's a suffering servant. The conquering king is coming later. He's telling them that he's a king that must die for the salvation of his people. And that the kingdom he's establishing is not a kingdom of this world. But each time he teaches his disciples this, they're just not getting it. They're rejecting it. They're not embracing it. They're still pursuing an earthly kingdom where you place your faith and your trust and your own abilities and your own strengths where self-reliance and independence is more valuable than humility and dependency. 
That's why a couple of weeks ago we saw them trying to cast out this demon and they couldn't. Even though Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons, they couldn't cast out this demon. And they go to Jesus and they ask, why? Say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? And Jesus' response is piercing. He says, because you didn't even ask. Because you didn't even pray. They were still seeking an earthly kingdom where importance is determined by status and power, not service and love. That's why we saw them last week arguing about who amongst them was the greatest. And Jesus says, you want to be great in my kingdom? Then you have to love. Then you have to serve. You have to be a servant of all. And today is a continuation of that struggle for the disciples. And that's why we're seeing them now trying to stop a person from casting out a demon in Jesus' name. Trying to stop a person from being liberated by Jesus from the oppression and the possession of demons. What does John say in verse 38 of Mark? John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Because he was not following who? Us. Not he was not following you, Jesus, but he was not following us. In other words, John is saying, hey, you're not in this club. You don't get to cast out demons. We get to cast out demons. But what's the irony here? This nobody who wasn't cool enough to be in their club is now doing what they themselves have just failed to do, right? And so what Mark is showing us here is our tendency to want to puff ourselves up to want to think highly of ourselves, to reassure our faults and to cover up our flaws by putting others down, by creating some private exclusive club where we keep others out. And, you know, ad agencies and marketing firms have been making billions of dollars exposing this deep flaw in us, our desire to have status and privilege and exclusivity. The uh, American Express card, for instance, right? First, you have the green card, the green card. And long as you're not a total moron and have an income, you could have this card, okay? The next, what do you have? The gold card. Ooh, it's gold. You have to be a little bit more than a non-moron to have this card. You have to have decent credit. You have to be willing to pay $125 a year in fee. And then you have the Premier Rewards Gold Card. Bet you didn't know about that one. The <laughs> Premier Rewards Gold Card. If you're in this club, you don't simply get single points for every dollar spent because single points are for losers. You get double points and even triple points for certain purchases, right? And then you have the Platinum Card. Platinum Card are for rich people. And if you have this Platinum Card, you, ha- you get a personalized concierge service, which basically means when you call, they'll actually answer you. They'll actually pick up the phone. If, you have, if you're in this club, you get complimentary access to airport lounges that exist behind those frosted sliding doors. And you always wonder, what's back there? Can I go back there? No, you can't. You're not in this club. And uh, that's it, right? No, that's right. You're like, what? That's, that's not it. There is the American Express black card. Let me show you the picture. 
American Express black card. Look at that card. It's beautiful. It's black. Dan Henderson is my hero. He's not very smart, though, posting a picture of his card on the web. I see you. Don't write that number down. Don't write that number down. It's not even expired yet. I can't believe he did that. You can't just be rich to be in this club. You have to be rich. Not just rich. And you can't even apply to be in this club. You have to be invited. You have to charge over $250,000 a year on your platinum card. So basically, if you buy a house every year with your platinum card, then you'll get an invitation. And if you're sitting here, you're like, oh, I want that black card. I've just proven my point. And even if you don't want to be in the black card club, we all have some private, exclusive club we want to be a part of so that we could feel special in some way because we're all desperately trying to mask our flaws and reassure our faults that we're better than others. We're not that bad. And this is the nature of the kingdom of man. It's self-seeking. It's self-loving. It's self-centered. It's self-exalting. It is a self-captivated kingdom. But Jesus, with his response to the disciples, is showing us the nature of his kingdom, the nature of his kingdom. He tells them not to stop this man, and in doing so, he's telling his disciples, hey, it's not about you. It's not about you. He's telling them the extent of what God is doing in the world is not limited to what he's doing just in your life, right? But many of us feel this way. Our attitudes and our outlook is determined by what we feel like God is doing or not doing in our lives. Instead of looking up and seeing all the things that God is doing in this world. What Jesus is saying is he's doing incomprehensibly more all the time than we could ever think or imagine. He's saying, just as I gave you the authority to cast out demons, I gave it to this guy too. He's saying, I'm not here to set up some private exclusive club. I'm here to establish a kingdom that's going to reach all the peoples. I'm doing a work that's beyond you. And so by the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, we see that he has over 500 disciples, not just the 12. He's saying the world doesn't revolve around you. You know, to a world that once believed that the heavenly spheres revolved and rotated around the earth, a man named Copernicus wrote a treatise and he said that the heavenlies don't revolve around the earth. They revolve around the sun. And we call what happened thereafter the Copernican Revolution. God is calling every single one of us to go through a Copernican Revolution where we realize it's not about us. Where we realize the world doesn't revolve around us. It's about him. It revolves around him. Jesus also responds in verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here Jesus is showing us something else about the nature of God's kingdom versus man's kingdom. You see, within man's kingdom, significance and worth is determined by what you're able to bring to the table. How talented you are how beautiful you are, how much money you have, 
what kind of accomplishments you've done. But what determines your entrance into the kingdom of God is not determined by some great accomplishment of yours, but it's by faith. It's by faith that is displayed through your love for God and your love for people. And so whether you've done something as great as casting out a demon or as something as small as offering somebody a cold water of drink, Jesus is saying, if it came from a heart of faith that loves him, that loves God and loves his people, you will by no means lose your reward. Entrance into God's kingdom is not determined by what you can do for God, but by what God can do for you. It's determined by his power, his beauty, his riches, the greatness of his accomplishments and his works. You know, JFK famously once said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. But when it comes to God's kingdom, it's not about what you can do for Jesus. It's about what Jesus can do for you. After all, what can we possibly offer this God that he doesn't already have? What can we offer him that's of any good? For who has ever given a gift to God that he ought to be repaid? For all things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory forever. And so for the believer, what ought to mark normal Christianity is that we be a people not of pride, that there ought to be no boasting in us. There ought to be no, hey, look at me. But it ought to always be, hey, look at him. Look how great he is. Look how worthy he is. Look how beautiful he is. And so conviction ought to sit in for us here. I'm deeply convicted by this. In so many ways, I only care about myself, my own comforts, my own well-being. But at the same time, my heart is so deceitful that it wants to be let off the hook. Wants to be let off the hook. And so I feel myself saying to myself, hey, but you're not that bad. You're not totally self-seeking. You seek God. You're not, you're not that bad of a guy. You, you're actually pretty God-centered. And so which is it? Am I so self-centered that I need to repent and have a Copernican revolution? Or am I doing okay? Which is it? Well, Jesus offers us a couple of litmus tests to find out which is it. And they can be found starting in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I'm sure all of you have these verses underlined in the Bible as your all-time favorite verses, right? 
Jesus is painting a very graphic picture here. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes causes you to sin, tear it away from you. It is better to enter into the kingdom of heaven blind, lame, and crippled than to be thrown into the fires of hell. So the first litmus test to know whether you're self-seeking or God-seeking, the first litmus test is by looking at the manner in which you're fighting against sin in your life. By looking at the manner in which you're fighting against sin in your life. Because if you're self-seeking, you're not going to fight sin. You're going to keep doing it because it makes you feel good. But if you're God-seeking, what Jesus is saying is you're going to show no mercy to your sin. It is the call upon every believer. It is normal Christianity to deal ruthlessly with your sin. Body parts are mentioned here. The hands, the feet, and the eyes. And I think the sum of those is to simply say that everything that you see, everything that you do, everywhere that you go, everything that relates to life, any and all behaviors, if it causes you to sin, if it drags you away from Jesus, cut it off. Amputate it from your life. Cut it off. But... Jesus isn't actually calling us to physical amputation. Jesus is not calling us to physical amputation. Self-mutilation was prohibited in the Old Testament. And so what is Jesus doing? What is he doing? He's offering us a metaphoric hyperbole. He's giving us a metaphoric hyperbole to show us what killing sin actually looks like. What it looks like. The Apostle Paul elsewhere in Romans 8 and Colossians 3 will refer to as mortifying the deeds of the flesh, killing the deeds of the flesh. Or in the words of John Owen, he would say, laying our hands upon the throat of these things and not letting go until it has stopped breathing. How does fighting look like? How does fighting against sin within the believer look like? Jesus says it's like cutting your hand off. Paul says it's like killing your sin and mortifying the deeds of the flesh. John Owen says it's like laying your hands upon the throat of these things and not letting go until it has breathed its last. That's what it looks like. But it's painful to deal with sin in this way. Cutting off your hand is painful. Getting rid of your computer and doing away with your iPhone because you're addicted to pornography, that's painful. Selling your house and downsizing because your deep struggle is materialism, that's painful. Breaking up with your boyfriend because you know that you're desperately seeking his approval more than Jesus, that's painful. It's painful. But Jesus is saying these are the marks of a believer. These are the marks of a Christian. Not a super Christian, but a Christian. These are the marks of a Christian. The call upon every believer is to love Jesus more than anything else that this world has to offer and to cut off from you anything that would cause you to be dragged away from him. Loving Jesus like that, that's normal Christianity. 
And so the first litmus test seems to be pretty straightforward. How do we know if we're egocentric or God-centric? Well, look at how you're fighting sin and killing sin in your life. But the thing that I don't want us to miss here is the context in which Jesus is giving us this graphic illustration. The context. Many of us have heard this illustration before of cutting off your hand, your feet, plucking out your eyes. We've heard it before on the Sermon on the Mount. Most likely read it before in Matthew chapter 5. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives this illustration in the context of fighting for your personal holiness, fighting for your salvation, chopping off your hands so that you don't go to hell. But in what context is Jesus speaking here in Mark? Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He's speaking in the context of not causing others to sin or stumble. He's not speaking in the context of fighting for your personal holiness and salvation. He's speaking in the context of fighting for the holiness and salvation of others within the body of Christ. And so this is the second litmus test for whether we're seeking God or, or seeking self. What Jesus is saying is you may be willing to cut off your hand so that you don't go to hell. But are you willing to cut off your hand so that others don't go to hell? That's the question he's asking. In other words, you may be willing to take drastic actions and steps for your own personal holiness and salvation and well-being. But are you willing to take those same drastic steps for others? For your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see why this is such a revealing litmus test? Because out of self-seeking and out of self-love, we can do a lot of hard things. Out of self-love, people have literally cut off their own limbs. We've heard the stories, right? Man goes hiking, boulder, traps his arm in. If he stays, he will die. So driven by self-love, so that he doesn't have to die, he breaks out his pocket knife and amputates, cuts off his own arm at the elbow so that he could live. Self-love is a powerful thing. Through self-love, we can do drastic things. And so the really scary thing is that we can do all kinds of things, really live disciplined lives, get rid of all signs of external sin, completely live an ascetic life, not because we love God and want to be with him forever, but because we love ourselves and don't want to go to hell. There's a lot of things that we can do only with self-love. And so Jesus here leads us to the breaking point. To the point where if we are lying to ourselves, we can't lie anymore. To the point where if we've been faking it, we can't fake it anymore. You may be willing to lose a limb for your salvation. But are you willing to lose a limb for the salvation of the person sitting next to you? For the person sitting next to you. Maybe you are, because the person sitting next to you is your husband, or your wife, or your child, or your best friend. But are you willing to lose a limb for that Christian you don't like very much? 
for that guy in your missional community that just gets on your nerves? Are you willing to lose a limb for that person? Because what Jesus says is, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, right? One of these little ones. And who does Jesus specifically have in mind? The man who was casting out demons in his name. The man that John was pointing to and saying, hey, you're not in this club. Stop doing what you're doing. Jesus is saying, John, are you willing to lose a limb for that guy? For that guy that's irritating you, that's bugging you, for that guy that you just want to keep out, are you willing to lose a limb for that guy? Jesus keeps taking it to the next level, right? And why is he doing this? Why not just say, you should be willing to lose your hand, your feet, pluck out your eyes for God. You should be willing to do it for God. Why say you should be willing to lose your hands, your feet, pluck out your eyes for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Why does Jesus say it like that? Because this really is the litmus test that reveals it all. And though John completely fails the test here in Mark chapter 9, the good news, the good news for us is that he eventually got it. He eventually understood what Jesus was teaching him. That you can't claim to love God and not love his people. That you can't claim to love God and not love your brother. Well, how do we know he got it? We see it in the book of 1 John. 1 John is a book that this apostle John wrote. 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. See the lineup of the language there? In him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble. 1 John 3.10, by this it is evident who are the children of God. This is how you know. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of us, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John finally got it. And he wrote a whole book about it. He wrote a whole book about it. The whole book of 1 John is showing us the impossibility of saying you love God, but not loving his people. The impossibility of saying you love God, but not loving your brother. You can't say to me that you love me, but hate my kids. It's an impossibility. If you hate my kids, you do not love me. Right? And God is saying the same thing here. How did John get it? We have to find out, because I don't know about you, but there was a point in my preparation where all hope seemed to be lost. All hope seemed to be lost. The only thing I could say was, God, forgive me. Forgive me, I'm a sinner. I only care about myself. I only care about my salvation, my well-being. 
As long as I'm saved, who cares if so-and-so is saved? As long as I'm saved. That's why the Apostle Paul can say things like, I could wish that I myself were accursed if if it would mean the salvation of my people. There ought to be this wrestling within us, right? We love God and want to be with him so much, but we love his people so much that we could even wish to be accursed ourselves so that they could be saved. God is calling us to that kind of love. And so what's my hope? How can I not love just myself, but how can I know this kind of love that's willing to cut off everything for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, how was John able to do it? How was he able to change? 1 John 3.16, by this we know love. This is how we know. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John got it because he saw something, because he experienced something. What did he see? He saw Jesus lay down his life for them. How can we be a people that doesn't just look out for our own salvation, but the salvation of others? By experiencing Jesus lay down his life for us. You know, Jesus had his salvation guaranteed, right? He was already with the Father. And so if he was only concerned about his own salvation, his own well-being, his own holiness, he would have never left the heavenlies. But he did. He left the heavenlies. And he wrapped himself in human flesh. And he surrendered heavenly well-being for earthly suffering. He surrendered his own holiness and he became sin for us. That's what the Bible says. He became sin for us, right? Alec Motier says, Christ turned his back voluntarily, deliberately, and decisively upon all that belonged to personal glory and all that conduced to personal gain, he recognized no limit to the extent to which his obedience to God and self-humbling must go. Whatever he found in himself to be expendable, he spent. While anything was left which could be poured forth, he poured it forth. Nothing was too small to give or too great. And so Jesus laid his life down. And not only were his hands and his feet cut off, he himself was cut off. Right? Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your feet causes you to sin, cut it off. But Jesus, he himself, he who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. He himself became sin. And so what had to happen? He himself had to be cut off. And so on the cross, as he became sin on our behalf, as he was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He himself was cut off so that we would not have to be cut off. And after all, if the cutting off of limbs is a solution to our sin problem, if the cutting off of limbs is a solution to how you can be saved, do we have any hope in that? 
My hands just caused me to sin. Chop those off. There go my hands. My feet caused me to sin. I lopped those off too, so there go my feet. My eyes caused me to sin, so I tear those out, so there goes my eyes. If I don't have my hands, if I don't have my feet, if I don't have my eyes, am I going to stop sinning? No, because my sin comes from my heart. It comes from here. And so then I have to pluck out my heart. And if I pluck out my heart, that is the end of me. That is the end of me. There is no hope. And so Jesus, because he himself was cut off, he was able to amputate our hearts. He was able to amputate our hearts, not only amputate it, but transplant it. He was able to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And when did he do this? When did he do this for us? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did he lay down his life for us? While we were yet sinners. While we were his enemies. While we were spitting upon him and nailing him to the cross. While we were an abomination to him, he laid down his life for us. And so there ought to be no limit to our willingness to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter how annoying they are, no matter how deeply they've wronged us, there ought to be no limit to our willingness. Why? Because Jesus laid down his life for us while we were his enemies, while we were spitting in his face, while we were nailing him to the cross, while we were an abomination. He laid down his life for us. We ought to have no limits. And so, what if we loved each other like that? What if we loved each other like that? What if everything that you're willing to do for yourself, you were also willing to do for your brother and sister in Christ? What if we lived like that? What would the church look like? What if on Sundays as we gather, what if during the week as we gather together with our missional community groups, we saw each other truly as brothers and sisters? Because we are. Because we are. Jesus paid a great price of infinite worth to make us brothers and sisters. To make us brothers and sisters that call him our older brother that led us to our heavenly father. It is a greater reality than any biological one. It is a reality that will last for eternity. For eternity. In 10 billion years, I'm going to guarantee you something. In 10 billion years, you're going to intimately know and love like crazy every single believer that has ever walked planet Earth. Think about that. In 10 billion years, you're going to intimately know and love like crazy the Apostle Paul. You're going to intimately know and love like crazy Moses, David, Samson. In 10 billion years, you're going to intimately know 
and love like crazy every single person in this room. Every single person. Who's the person in your life that you most intimately know? That you love like crazy? You're going to know and feel towards every single believer in that way. Even the Christian you find annoying. Right? And so what if we just got the party started a little early? What if we start living out now what heaven is going to be like later? What would we look like to this world, to our city? What would we look like? Jesus says, a new commandment I give unto you. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the family that you have given me in Christ. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that I know now and that I will know one day. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm crazy about now and the ones that I will be crazy about one day. So, Father, until that day, will you make us a people that's marked by our love for one another? Thank you for your son. Thank you, Jesus, that you have laid down your life for us while we were your enemies. And so, Father, let us be a people that are willing to lose everything for the salvation of your children, for the salvation of our siblings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.